Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Susan Schaefer McCulley interviews Joan Molyneux. In 1984, Susan Schaefer McCulley published her groundbreaking book, For the Children's Sake. For many of us, it was our first introduction to the Charlotte Mason method. But how did McCulley herself learn the method? In her book, she describes how her children were blessed by a school that still practiced the gentle art of an education based on a certain Charlotte Mason's ideas. She sent off for books by this lady who lived nearly a hundred years ago. McCulley devoured these books, but then she did more. She spoke to one of Charlotte Mason's successors. Joan Molyneux was the principal of the PNEU School and editor of the PNEU Journal from 1966 to 1974. In 1978, six years before the publication of For the Children's Sake, Macaulay recorded an 80-minute interview with Molyneux. In this interview, we hear in real time a discovery that has become our discovery. Now we finally have the opportunity to share the complete recording of this historic conversation with you. We hope you enjoy it. Perhaps there's more we could talk about about educating children at home, in a home classroom, the sort of thing that somebody might be asking you if they were thinking of setting up teaching, the, the sort of arrangements you spoke of, the actual physical arrangements in the day. If we were going to go and set up a home classroom ourselves and teach our own children, now they would be a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a twelve-year-old, how would I be able to organize this to the best advantage? What sorts of things would help me? Well, aside from the um, books for lessons uh, set on the curriculum, you would want um, something in the way of furniture and stationery, of course, and books outside, for instance, um, a useful encyclopedia, so the children could use that that dealt with things in the situation you were in. Chairs, physical, they comfortable, so that their feet are on the floor and uh, tables to the right height, not being fussy, but just so that one's physical being is not obtruding when you're doing lessons. A uh, space where you could collect together in a circle, perhaps for a story. Bible lesson can very often be taken together unless there's a very wide uh, gap in the ages. In the uh, Peonial School, the Old Testament is covered over the terms in um, the first, not five years, from the sixth till about eleven. The whole of the Old Testament is covered in Old Testament lessons, the story, part Genesis, parts of Exodus, Numbers, um, the kings and the prophets and the stories that well-educated people know about, even though they haven't been uh, theological students. And in the same time, the uh, Gospels are covered, 
not St. John until a little later, and parts of the Acts of the Apostles. Before starting a lesson in this particular subject, I think it's wise, Charlotte Mason thought it was wise, to have a little discussion, perhaps run through the points of the story and talk about the happenings and the people in it so that um, there would be a background in the child's mind and then read direct from the Bible the story in the Old Testament of the people, uh, of the situations and so on. The New Testament, perhaps the, the parable, you'll be able to talk about, for instance, the prodigal son, a little bit about the life of people in those times and how the objects which Jesus spoke of were everyday objects. Uh, for instance, um, the sheep, the sheep were and still are used largely all over that part of the world and the streams which were of great value, where the shepherd would take his flocks. But um, explain the countryside. It's a little difficult for us living in England to realise sometimes that um, the stories that Jesus told were made to people of little education, were told to people of little education but um, who knew a lot about the natural things about them, and he used those very often as illustrations. It's just a slight digression. When planning the um, timetable in the school, when you're all settled, it seems advisable to start with Bible stories, with uh, prayers, starting the day off well and then go on immediately to rather demanding subject like mathematics or arithmetic and reading but not just straight on the end perhaps mixing them up with um, tales or history lessons something of that kind but um, making the timetable out wisely so you don't get all the same sort of subjects together in the afternoon you have nature study nature notebooks picture study music appreciation, handcraft, painting, and things of that kind. But when you have um, a mixture of age groups, sometimes it's possible to have the younger children um, working with um, craft material or doing their nature notebooks while you are engaged in the more difficult work with the older children. Has there, in your experience, been a mother who's been able to also cope with even younger children? Well, if she hasn't a nanny or somebody, say she has a three or four year old as well during those hours. Yes, it, it can be difficult, but um, uh, small children are quite often accustomed to listening to stories, even they may not comprehend them. They uh, can quite often be settled down to doing something quiet or playing, building with their bricks uh, in part of the room, which um, gives them um, manual strength, perhaps doing a little bit of sewing. And very often they like to um, imitate their older brothers and sisters and practicing doing 
their own kind of writing in books, and then have a time when activities, you know, perhaps five minutes between a lesson when you can bounce about. And, um, you know, they get sort of um, fidgetier themselves. It is, it is more difficult. But um, very often there are people round about that have young children, so it might be possible to share them with another mother. It yes. doesn't present a problem, but it is a question of bringing out the children to realise that they can't use up the mother's attention all the time. They're only one of a group, and then they can settle down doing what they like to do, because it does mean a lot of forethought when you're going overseas to things. Um, I don't know what they have now, dinky cars, trains and things, yes. and making uh, materials so that uh, they can get on quite happily for a little while by themselves. I suppose it, it's the sort of thing, too, that if one had two or three families, um, one of the mothers could take the younger children, or perhaps arrange between, if you had the children from two or three families, you could have the different age groups yes. organised on slightly different lines. So we, we found that with um, parents, I was talking about oil fields, the type, oil field type of situation, where um, families have shared out in that way, and there might be a very artistic mother, and she would take on the drawing and the musical, would have a recorder or whatever instrument you could use in that particular climate. So that unless you're utterly on your own, it is usually possible to have supervision from another quarter. And then when you are on your own, the older children really get down to the more difficult literature and grammar and things that need, you know, sort of concentrated teaching in, the, in that special sense. It, have you found that the teaching, a mother teaching her child how to read has presented any special difficulties in the initial stages? I don't think so, because I think that um, I've always tried to show the mothers the very simple way in which um, to teach you know the sounds of the, the sounds of the, the sounds the letters make the short sound of eh and the longer sound of the consonants as well as um, you know what they look like their names a like an animal really who a donkey brays but his name is donkey you see yeah. in the same way the letter has a name and a short sound, and then the, the words that you know that you can't sound out, you have to recognise, you have to use both the look and the say method along with the phonic, phonic method. It, it isn't really beyond the capabilities of uh, anyone who's really determined to do it. I suppose so, it requires a consistent effort mainly, Yes, in a structured sense that it's not just left up to chance, but that yes. it's something. Well, that's why I think the, the the record books come in very useful mm. because you see what you did yesterday and how far you got. You you build on that all the time, and um, when you're reading to a child at night, sometimes you know you say, oh, "Look, now you learnt that word, and can you see it anywhere else?" And so interest. Make them realise that words are not just, you know, the cat sat on the map. They're not just there, but they are the whole life of everything. They're in this book. And, you know, you love these stories. Well, you'll be able to read them yourself soon. Mm -hmm. and try and 
make them see how the simple things they learn form part of a more adult existence. Yes, I suppose this really is an advantage if one is teaching a child at home that you can I think it is. pick up at different times during the day and help weave it into the child's total experience. Yes, and you see, yes, words used in one book are also used in another, which they don't always think about. I mean, it's not sort of thoughts a child would have. So that, uh, you know, they're not learning something and when finished learning it, tuck that way in the drawer, it leads to a wider field of um, effort altogether. So, in fact, the child taught at home could, in fact, be enjoying a benefits that a child in school yes, doesn't Yes, I'm much wider, wider experience than I. Yes. Well, I won't say it's nothing to do with it now. It staggers me the way people get furious because their five-year-olds come to school being able to read. I mean, they're really almost disgraced because of that, and I think it's quite shocking. Mm. It's much better to be taught to read anywhere if you're taught to read than not to be taught to read yes. until you're seven or eight, which, of course, is far too late. What about spelling? Because most important. It is most important. And um, I, I've talked to many people and people who employ others who aren't feel the importance of being able to express yourself and to spell properly is absolutely paramount if you're going to do a job properly later on, which, of course, we've known all along. Now, children, uh, children I've known who have um, been taught to read and taught to read and on and on and on and leaving the writing side behind are inclined to be bad spellers. You really should keep the writing and reading and reading more advanced and the spelling going on together. I don't mean to say that you ought to be able to spell the word mother when you can read it, but keep up the writing and spelling side with the advance of reading. Mm -hmm. They're both well, equally important in that sense. Yes, you see, and so if you're a natural bad speller, it's very, very difficult to get out of it. Well, have it really later on. It is a tremendous disadvantage if you can't spell, if you're going to do well, really, in whatever job and express yourself. This often seems a real weakness mm. that a child isn't, doesn't learn to perhaps, I don't know what it is, see the, remember, because English well, isn't it easy is, that way. No, it isn't. It is, of course, a lot to do with visual memory, but it is also to do with the discipline of learning too. And um, in um, years we've just gone through, writing absolutely anything at all has been deemed to be a good and useful thing. Spelling absolutely regardless. Well, you see, it isn't. For very practical reasons, I'm perfectly certain examiners just won't be bothered with. You know, you can't make out what child's doing. And it you know, it's it's right. There's, there is a right and a wrong way of doing this particular thing. But what's the point of learning the wrong way? You may speak badly, so if you do it phonetically, it's going to be wrong. But if you learn how to spell and don't necessarily speak with a, a very good accent, it doesn't matter because you know how to spell. And that is the right way of spelling at this particular time. And I think it's extremely important that you should keep... Um, 
and I on the spelling too. I don't mean to be um, really make a, a, a fightful to do about it, but I think it should be regarded as of real importance in the early yes. stages. Do you think this should take the form of a lesson? In the sense that a child set a few words yes. each week and then going over them? It may be. You see, it does depend on the child. Some children uh, with neat and tidy minds would enjoy that sort of thing, but you don't want to do it. So it becomes a burden and therefore is not useful because a child can't be bothered. You see, you want to get to engage their attention and enjoyment in producing a well-spelt piece of work, neatly done, all those sort of things all come into it. So that I think it's important to make it a small issue anyway in the, the reading, writing, spelling mm. arena. Yes, it, it seems of practical importance because suddenly mm. you have a, an older child who has real difficulty. Yes, and you see, you're, when you're doing an exam, how on earth do you spell either? Mm. Can't. You see, your flow of thought, like interrupting in the narration lesson, your flow of thought is stopped and you may never pick it. Therefore, mm. that's one reason, one practical reason for wanting to be a good speller who can express themselves with some facility. Mm. Now, in, in, if one was organising the day, would do you feel on the whole that one could do the lessons in the morning and leave the afternoons for other activities? Yes. Uh, in the tropics, of course, they do that and then perhaps do 20 minutes, half an hour when the sun's gone down at six. Yes. Uh, it doesn't really matter at all. What I think is that the um, more demanding lessons should be uh, spaced out during the morning as a whole especially for younger children, and then the subjects that I mentioned could be tucked in either to the afternoon or evening, but it's most important that there should be a really free time during the day when you can get out, get in a free dark time, you know, during the afternoon doing things because, um, well, we all know we need our, you know, if we don't have some sort of quiet time during the day, you feel the lack of it, and children do particularly because mm -hmm. they live on the whole, it's high speed, don't they? Yes. And in hot climatic conditions, it's um, more exhausting it is perhaps in our country. Mm -hmm. A lot of school rooms traditionally have worked on competition, which is lacking in Charlotte Mason's philosophy. It's more a desire to, to learn because it's there and it's there to be learned rather than doing better than the child sitting yes, next to you. Yes, do you feel that this element, uh, lack of competition, can be a detriment if a child's working on their own and has nobody else to to pit themselves it, against? Yes. It, sometimes it did come up, but not very often. If you try to show the child, uh, for instance, in the PNU, you are working against all the other people, there are hundreds of other people doing exactly the same that you're doing. and. In this instance, I had quite a lot of children writing to each other, pen friends, and saying, I'm in the second form, and I like this, that, and the other. And uh, it gave them a feeling that they weren't on their own doing that. And I thought, think the examination, 
ideas that we had all done all those years gave the same sort of feeling. They were a part of a huge school. Mm. And um, in 1972, I think it was, I had a huge children's gathering in London, mm. in um, well, quite near the office, in the huge drill hall there. And we had nearly 800 children there. And the mm. delight there was in children from third form in one school meeting another was quite marvellous because I, well, between us, we organised so that all the children should be mixed up in groups that were different countries around the hall. And, you know, it showed, it gave that generation of children a tremendous boost to realise mm. that they were uh, one of really a worldwide school because we had children in four different countries all over the world, you see, doing the same sort of work. So that um, it didn't really very often arise, just occasionally, but um, it had to outweigh the disadvantages which would have occurred if they'd had to stay at home or something like that. Yes. You see, it's difficult to generalise, really. Yes. It is. Uh, but children do compare themselves, even if it's lacking on the teacher's staff. Yes. They notice what another child's doing and they say, well, she's finished her son, so I better hurry up and do mine. Yes, it, it can yeah. work like that. But I think in a home school, um, that, that sort of thing never occurs because, you see, in the piano, you never have marks or occasionally in schools they have cups for running and that kind of thing but they don't they don't compete there are never any lists on the notice board so and so at the top mm -hmm. so and so at the bottom so that's you that's know, quite damaging isn't thing. it oh to be nine and think you are the last yes and everyone else tells you you are the last yes. sure because for girls can be very unpleasant aren't they yes you see but i think without that sort of competitive side you cut out that sort of behaviour, rather, and that's mm. uh, definitely a bonus. I've never had competition all my life, you see, having been, mm. except for, I think, two years I was in another school, but perhaps too young to know. But it, that has never worried me. And it doesn't very often occur. It does sometimes, and then you have to just use what there is around, I think, to, mm. you know, to settle that one. In in choosing, as one uses the cur curriculum, if it was a family like a yes. home classroom using this, so is, do you think that the fact that the family was a Christian, that they should consciously try to bring this into lessons like history or geography or just forget it as they're teaching them? No, because you see, it's part of your life. You yes. must, um, wherever it could come in, it sounds like, you know, whenever it is appropriate, just say the odd word, it, it should permeate, and it should permeate the atmosphere, which is most important, the sort of friendly, kindly, all the attributes that you think of, uh, of, of Christ's attitudes towards people, situation, wicked people, people who's, um, who had lived at disadvantage, you know, had his tremendous kindness, um, I think wherever possible, the Christian point of view should be brought in. Yes, and you, you feel that this is, well, it would come into such thing, anything, really, especially history. Would. Yes, yes. Or literature, mm -hmm. which is coping with ideas. 
Because our parents are very worried by um, totally different points of view that come in textbooks. Yes. Putting totally different points of view across, and some of them are feel that perhaps they need to think out Christian ways of expressing moral judgments, really, whether yes. certain things are right and wrong. Yes. And on the other hand, one, one does want to not try to make everything into a moral system for children, but let them enjoy yes, because the world as they can. You don't, yes, you don't want to um, go beyond suggesting something. I mean, uh, let's say that our other points of view, and life is extremely hard mm. for all of us, really, in, in various ways, isn't it, yes. from the point of view of judgments? And I think children in mid-schools who have been uh, well brought up do have a very difficult time in standing up for what they know is right. Mm. So I think it's um, appropriate that they should know other people have different ideas and um, this is what they say, this is what they do, and discuss what you feel, what they feel about it, what their points of view on this strange approach to, well, any subject, history or geography or anything else, literature. And um, between you sort of sort it out so they have your clear judgment, perhaps, knowing that... Um, there are other points of view, yes. and they may come up against them in the um, course of uh, talking to their friends and so on. Yes, it would probably be quite good if one was having a small classroom situation mm -hmm. to make sure that the children came in contact with the, as many different kinds of people as you could manage, so that they weren't too narrow. Yes, I think it would the thing is that the, um, basically they know right and wrong. That's really the bottom of the lot, isn't it? Mm. But um, have uh, an open mind and then, it, you know, as adults, they decide, oh, well, I used to believe that, but I don't now. Well, I mean, that, that's theirs. That's their mm. uh, standpoint that they're taking. But as teachers and as parents of young children, I think we want to try to impart standards. But at the same time, when they're old enough, have discussions on things which perhaps to you are unacceptable, not in any deep sort of way, but um, saying, well, you know, there are other people in the world, because you don't want to suffer tremendous shocks no. when they meet. Mm. Well, I mean, we've just been talking about unacceptable language, haven't we, yes. and ideas. But unless they're armoured yes. against that in some mm. sort of way, I think we're leaving them without something that they will have. Yes, it um, shouldn't have the effect of having them too long in a greenhouse atmosphere. No, it, that's just it, isn't it? So that they will be prepared for the 20th century mm. and its difficulties. But, um, it's the late 20th century, because it's really, isn't it, since the... I suppose 25s. Yes. Almost, that while decadence is set in so many areas. I wonder if you could describe to me, the, uh, as a teacher, how you would think of taking a group of children, perhaps a very small family group, on what was known as a nature walk, as Charlotte Mason 
organized this in her schools. Was it a very structured thing where you, or did you go out with no. empty minds and see what you could uh, find? No. Um, when, uh, well, when we were up at Amble's side, we were taken for nature walks and uh, as a uh, teacher in schools and cases, I've gone on a great many and usually you want, you know where your side, the sort of area you're going to be in and so in your mind you have ideas of things that you might, might find and might look for and I would definitely um, recommend children who wanted to take papers and pencils mm. because you can't remember everything. And then uh, if you're going across fields in the summer, see uh, the flowers you could find in the hedges in the middle of the field and the insects keeping very quiet. You um, might see for animals so that you'd have some sort of basic idea as the teacher and then um, look out and find all that you could, sometimes a lot more than you thought, and um, go out, you know, usually about an hour or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then uh, very often we come back and get on each notebooks and write what we'd seen and perhaps add to a list and then perhaps brought back one or two flowers to paint in, um, you know, opposite the page of the nature notebook. And uh, children are extraordinary, they, you know, come bring things to you and uh, oh, what's this? Well, if you didn't know, you'd say, well, now put it in your tin or keep it in your hand and we'll look it up when we get home. You'd mm -hmm. look up in flowers. See, to make it a, a sort of thing that you're all doing together, you weren't the teacher and they're the children because it's easy enough not to know something mm -hmm. um, which you find on the way. And... Um, uh, be involved and sometimes I mean I wouldn't because I couldn't but sometimes teachers I found they had their own nature notebook and they come back and do it when the children were doing theirs you know children would come and talk to them and discuss what they were doing and so they were all doing things together mm. on the same sort of level the children knew all the time that the teacher um, was the one to whom they could refer and you know it, it um so it's quite a lot of wonder, really. You can get a feeling of wonder into it if, just by saying the odd things. Beautiful mm -hmm. flowers. Fancy, mm -hmm. you know, it needs all that water. King cups down by there, and its stem is hollow because it's got pink water. And, you know, just the smallest little things, which, you know, people have got to have a lot of scientific knowledge, but just the thoughts, something like that. Mm -hmm. And, and birds, of course, a tremendous interest in birds. Yes. When I was at school, we used to go out and headmistress before breakfast, bird watching. Mm. And, uh, you know, finding all sorts of exciting birds before everyone's... And the other end of the scale was uh, going out at night, the stars, mm. which is... Uh, there used to be astronomy books on the programme. I don't think they're on now, but it's another thing that fascinates me. Yes. The heavens. Mm. And, of course, that... The heavens at night time give the children an enormous feeling of immensity and, mm -hmm. and then you'll get some glimpse into the character of God really. Yes. Because of this you know, he's in charge of this. Mm -hmm. Gives quite a case. different perspective. But it does. It's in it's one you can't really get in any other way, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I think it's 
in you know so simply you write reading out a book but so simply on a evening pencil to look at the stars or see a clips of the moon which happens quite often it's so utterly thrilling and you cannot do anything about it it goes on whether you're standing on your head or heels doesn't it yeah it's, you know, it's, it's it's uh exciting i think I think this comes back to Charlotte Mason's idea of education being a science of relations. Mm. There's something very deep in that and tied in also with her idea of not making an artificial atmosphere for children, but that the real one is so much more wonderful. Oh, interesting, and so much more in it. Yes, and it is real life, mm. coming to terms with that. Yes. Which is quite important because I, I think we who are younger parents tend to think that you need a lot of specialised equipment. This is one of the problems. People can't envisage educating a child apart from a lot of elaborate, expensive equipment. Whereas in actual fact, the world itself is perhaps the best. Well, I think myself that uh, expensive gets in the way, especially if you're not trained, gets in the way of the pupil. They want, they can't, they find counting difficult. Well, now let's see, oh look, there's a box of matches, let's use some of those, the ones that have already been used, or now go and get some stones, there's some outside, and let's use those for counters, you see. Instead of paying, goodness knows what, for a box of counters carried all the way to Nigeria, you see. In that sort of way, um, apparatus is Totally unnecessary, I think. And, um, yes. I've never advocated it because a lot of the time I was teaching this sort of wartime and afterwards. But um, it seems to me there's far too much emphasis laid on the equipment, and you get all the sticks and their lovely colours, and you put them out and arrange them. About 10 minutes later, you start doing what you're supposed to be doing with them, you see. Well, that time's yes. all wasted on something, and you know, it's ephemeral. Yes. So I don't think the equipment, I mean, there are certain basic things, obviously, that you need to have, but equipment for numbers, equipment for um, writing letters, uh, you know, writing and that kind of thing. You just want the basic things you want to use and make do on the spot with little aids, really, for the young children. Yes. Thinking of equipment, if one, do you know whether... Do you think it's possible to be successful if one didn't have a special room with special furniture? So if one was in an ordinary house and one had to clear the dining room or even the kitchen? Yes. Oh, well, yes, I'm sure that's often happened. It's perfectly all right. You just do want to see that um, during the morning, um, perhaps your friends can be told you are not available. So yes. you're not in and out, like dogging around, mm. and the telephone interrupting you all the time. But it, the, about the room, it doesn't really matter at all. I only said that because of, uh, it's more comfortable for children to have their feet on, yes. on the thing. I mean, but it's, it isn't actually essential. You would probably make cushions or something if their chairs are very yes. high and they're around a high kitchen table. Now, I don't think the room matters at all, but you... As so I say, you do want peace and quiet yes. within the noise in the classroom. Probably the, the timetable then would be the most important factor. Yes. Designing at the regular times yes. so that this in itself was a discipline. Yes. And um, that was 
the first commitment yes, it, that one uh, had. There, you want to have slight flexibility. It wouldn't stop at 10 o'clock in the middle of a story which you'd rarely arrange to go on to another place. You know, I mean, yes. it's just slight variation of that, but um, I quite agree with the dis discipline of keeping uh, fairly regular time is an important one. One problem that people have often mentioned to me, and I don't know whether you would feel this is due to poor habit training in the very early years, but as children are failing to concentrate, so the lesson, and perhaps they understand it, perhaps at the beginning they're quite interested, and then after a very short time their attention is wandering. Uh, if you've noticed this in a classroom situation, what, what could be done about it to try to help them? Yes, um, I, I'll take an um, ordinary literature lesson. You're going to read about somebody in literature, in, in, from a literature book you read about. You talk about it a little bit before and say, well, this name comes in, that name comes in, and just a little bit about what you're doing. Now, I'm going to read uh, to you, and then afterwards I want you to tell back what I've read. So you've prepared your lesson beforehand, of course, you know what you're going to do, and you read that, that passage through. And then you say, now will you narrate to one child, and she starts, go on, now you go on. Now, has anybody else got anything to say? And get the narration complete. You may do that once or twice, and then you realise that someone's not bothering to listen. And um, next time you pick on them, and they haven't been attending. You find they haven't been, you say, you, know, you haven't, I don't think you've been listening. Well, you get so-and-so, and you're finished off like that. And um, you realise uh, what is happening. Either at that, at that lesson or at another lesson, I would do um, narrating in pairs that I suggested to you before. Yes. And if this inattention persisted, I should talk to the child about it and um, try and reason with them or try and um, get them to do something very, very small, perhaps... Um, uh, take them on one side and say, oh, now I'm going to read this, and then you tell it that. Something very short, so that they, their attention, habit of attention, gradually grows, because as you say, it really is a habit. Yes. Try and get it like that. And try, and try by the example of the others to make them feel that there was something that they were missing doing because of that. And um, in other smaller ways, uh, getting their attention over things, for instance, giving around the pencils at the beginning of the large class, the beginning of the class, just saying once what you want done and gradually getting them to appreciate that you're not going to keep on repeating if you don't do it when you're asked, well, then somebody else will, and they begin to feel they're missing out on something. Mm -hmm. I think in a class that's not too big, perhaps, that children find themselves out of the running if the rest of the class is um, attentive and um, is ready to respond to the teacher when, when the time comes. Yes. But perhaps you could tell us a bit more about this narration, which Charlotte Mason felt was a key factor, didn't she, in children's yes. understanding? 
what I, they were listening yes, to. Yes, her idea, which um, I've always found perfectly valid, is that if you say something and everybody knows that or read or something you have read is not going at any time to be repeated, you will pay more attention. But if you say it, read it again, talk about it and read it again, everyone gets so bored that they cease to give their attention. So her idea was that every lesson, even in Latin and Greek later on, was read through once and then you were asked to narrate, to respond. And with small children, it's absolutely astonishing what they will remember. You see, it's not a parrot repetition. They repeat in their own words, as Charlotte Mason said, when they've told it back in their own language, in their own words, then they know, in the widest sense of the word, know. But until they've done that, it's not they in their own words write it, if you like, or tell it, or dictate it then they've made it part of them because they've taken it into their minds and what they've been able to receive and understand or they've been able to give it back. Yes. I know, um, I remember, I forget who told me, of um, a father who was very much involved in uh, his children's education there in the PNU and he used to travel a uh, long distance up to London every day and he'd read the Times leader and shut it and then narrate it back to himself and he found mm. at the beginning quite hopeless but he gradually realised that he was uh, developing his power of attention and he really made quite a good job of it. I think a lot of grown-ups would find it very difficult. Yes. Once I had um, about 30 mothers who were going overseas during the course of the year into the office and they were very anxious about this narration business. So I said, I will give you a lesson, a narration lesson so that you could see exactly how it works. So I used a very favourite book of mine, Heroes of Asgard, which is the story of the Norse gods, which you probably know. And I took a chart of that. It's about Balder, the beautiful. Read a bit, and um, they all sat in rows, and I asked various people to narrate, and they narrated quite fairly well, and um, enjoyed it. Then I read another piece, and I said, "Now I want you each of you to turn your neighbours and very quietly narrate to each other, so that you don't disturb the others." Well, the Babel was quite indescribable. I couldn't hear myself think. But it gave them the idea of what it was, and they realised, mm. you know, uh, what a demand it made on. Because they, I wasn't going to say it again. They were only going to hear it once, and they had to remember all the bits of it. I think I gave out some of the uh, names which they might have known beforehand, but it opened my eyes quite a lot, really, to, you know, the enthusiasm of pair, and it did want to make a good job of it. This could be used very simply with a very young child, couldn't yes. it? Yes. Even a three-year-old, one could read yes. them a story and close it and say, now you tell me about it. Yes. And then okay. afterwards, you say, well, didn't, um, didn't the hedgehog do something as well? That's what feeling. And then they'd say, you see, yes. just draw it out without any direct questions, because children hate direct questions. Do you feel this? Oh, I'm quite sure. Yeah. In lessons and other things, you know, 
what did you do all day? When their mind closes like a book. Mm. But um, it's gaining again a habit of attention. As I was reading, I think it was Home Education, one of the books the other day, and seeing terrific narrations. After one reading, some people in the third form, which means 11 or 12 years, had done with very abstruse subjects indeed. My worst um, experience of that, I went as a child in the fifth form to a children's gathering that was held in Canterbury, more lovely places, and we gave demonstration lessons at different classes, and um, our lesson was on um, Spencer's Fairy Queen, and it was read aloud, uh, and we had books all in this old English, you know, the S's of all efforts and so on. We had to narrate this huge arena of people afterwards, <laughs> having read it with some difficulty, and right off the first reading, it really was quite a difficult assignment. But, yeah, uh, you know, we managed it all right, because we had had the habit of it all down the years. Yes, I'm sure this would be something that parents who had their children in other schools that they weren't too happy about yes. would be able to do at home. Yes. In the it. evening, after yes. tea, read a really nice story that they yes. enjoy. What they liked, yes. I mean, even if it was a story they knew a bit, uh, in that sort of situation, they would learn to express themselves, which is yes. very lacking in uh, a great many schools now. They grow up and they can't write coherent um, article or letter, which they would have to for their employer. Yes. It has all sorts of ways like that. It's got many side effects, I think, this habit of narration. In a narration, if, for, for instance, one used it at home, yes. and you read a Bible story or the child read a chapter of the Bible, and then you said, you closed the book and you said, now you tell me what you've read, perhaps half the way through they might think of another question. We'll save this till the end. Yes, because you interrupt a narration, you've had it. Yes. I, in my teaching, sometimes... Um, we started, and then I've uh, remembered something I meant to say and said it, and realised afterwards, you know, yes. I've happened to do the rest of the narration. This interruption business is a real sin in the narration lesson. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if that happened, you say, but just a minute, finish the story, and then the concentration isn't broken. Yes. But in the Bible, I don't give them very long passages no. to narrate, because you've got the uh, difficulty of the language. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the beauty of it, the children will appreciate. I don't know how much you go with various new translations. Well, I am using um, a new translation with the New Testament. Which one is it? Which is called the New International. Right. You I haven't come across it. I've it's a straightforward. I agree with you. I think this beauty of the old language is a very special thing that children mm -hmm. can be an education, of course, in itself. Yes. Rather like Shakespeare. Yes. And, um, yes, I absolutely okay. adore listening on the radio to Shakespeare plays. Yes. I don't mind that the scene isn't there. I mean, sometimes ones I don't know very well, because as at school we read, you know, we did Shakespeare every single term, always, yes. right up to the fifth form. But um, sometimes the language just grips your throat. It's so incredible, isn't it? Some of the, yes. the way he puts perfectly simple things or the way he puts something that's 
so obscure that you suddenly see the light of day. Mm -hmm. And I, I all think the Bible's the same way. I do, I do agree that the uh, some of the uh, Old Testament in particular stories need quite an introduction to them. There's no use going through the story and it's incomprehensible. And I do think sometimes um, in the Old Testament perhaps a, a newer version is more useful because some of the Old Testament I find difficult myself to yes. understand, you know, some of the prophecies and so on. But, and of course, there's an awfully good Bible encyclopedia, isn't there? I was given yes. that. It's absolutely marvellous. And Bible dictionaries. Yes, to help the teacher yes. to um, perhaps illuminate a difficult passage for older children in the Old Testament, because you've got to, you've got to have the Old Testament yes. as a basis mm -hmm. for the new. Right, and it's part of it. It keeps referring it back. It does, you see. So a child has to know. And in fact, a lot of them are very appropriate because they're historical mm. situations and children do love the story oh, aspect yes. so yes. much. Oh, yes, they gain such you. a lot from Abraham and yes. Isaac. Etc. David Elijah. my Lider. passion. I absolutely adore him. Mm. <laughs> because of his fiery nature. Not flying fiery at all. So I don't know what was he get. But I, I think he's got the most vivid sort of personality. I think probably Isaiah. But you see, you have references to Isaiah, as you say. It's nice to know the sort of times that Isaiah lived in, why he said what he said. That's reproduced in the New Testament mm. and what's going on around him all the time. Because right. these old biblical characters are quite mm. striking. Last year in our church home, we had, um, I think it's called Mission to the Jews. The whole of the church was uh, decorated by Jewish things showing uh, the, applying the oxygen. Um, model of the temple and all the rest of it mm. and the whole around the church and the um, holy vessels, the scrolls and all the rest of it. And every evening was a lecture by this priest, I forget his name now, Med Medford or something like that. He goes around the country and his stories putting the setting of the Jewish people into our minds, the marriage feast at the time of our Lord, what mm. would be involved and those sort of things. And it really brought the Old Testament to life in quite an yes. extraordinary way. This would be a whole avenue it is, to see. open it up and breathe life into it. Yes, because people think Old Testament, uh, don't they, yes. if they don't know anything about it. Mm. And, um, well, it's a collection of we should call books, shouldn't we? If they were written nowadays, they would be yes. all in one cover. And um, give us an insight into the life, holy and otherwise, of those ancient people, which we have built civilization today, I suppose. Now, in, in teaching something like Shakespeare, I suppose you would use much the same approach, you getting yes. small bits at a time and making sure the child understood the thread of the story. 
that they weren't lost. Yes, it's important mm. in the home, if we're talking about in the home school, it's yes. important that, um, supposing um, you're doing as you like it, important that the characters, first of all, should be known who's related to whom and so on, and then just an uh, outline of the story uh, that um, you're going to read. It may be, um, I can't exactly remember, the beginning of As You Like It, it was a rather unfortunate beginning. They all went into the forest, didn't they? Well, you talk about that mm -hmm. a bit. And then, as far as possible, if there were two or three of you, and sometimes the fathers are gathered into this, you read the parts because it's, yes. you, know, so you might double up several times, but not just read it through paragraph by paragraph. Yes, as you write in a storybook, but try and take the parts and perhaps uh, perhaps do it in the evening, mm -hmm. and then narrate it afterwards, not in quite the same sort of way, because it'd be difficult. And you might do it over again, being a play and bringing out something different. Yeah, but um, you wouldn't you wouldn't treat it as an academic study where you've got to go through the prose and the blank verse and all the rest of it. It's just the enjoyment of the language and the story. And um, if you've been all the way through the PNU from eight or nine onwards, you see Shakespeare every term, you've covered quite a lot. Mm. And your appetite is whetted. And Shakespeare is continually produced here, there and everywhere. Yes. So that um, it's not a closed book to you, you know, you see your Macbeth. Good. You'll be able to see that. Yes. And of course, as uh, suppose as one has a child and they become used to enjoying these rather higher yeah. expressions in literature, in fact, that this is perhaps education achieved in that area. Well, it is. They have something then for the rest of their life. And it's a standard, you see. Yes, it's, it has stretched me. It's sort of standard. Um, for instance, he wouldn't really take Macbeth with them, uh, very young children. But for instance, there they would see where Macbeth failed because he comes in bright and uh, mm -hmm. you know victory all round him. I don't know if yes, he, doesn't he? And yes. then and Duncan's mm -hmm. uh, a nice little thing, mm -hmm. and then in comes Lady M. And it's, of course, her strength of character that uh, he fails because of his weakness. And they'll notice things like that. It'll, I don't say they'll say it, but they'll register yes. that, um, you know, he was nice, but he's absolutely horrid now. And then they accept witches and all the rest of it. There's a lot, lot to be learned from Shakespeare. The child won't accept everything, obviously, but there will be a thing, uh, sort of moral problem here and there or interest and sort of character point of view that he absorbed without knowing it maybe. And this, this was taught traditionally in the PNU from the age of nine, the yes. reading of Shakespeare. Right. Which, well anyway, back to my childhood, yes. but now of course you see it's been cast aside, oh, it has. except by Olive, who <laughs> <But laughs> refuses to. They still do it, but um, there's homeschool rooms needn't do it and all this sort of thing which is quite unnecessary because before, if they couldn't do it, they'd write and say, I can't do it. I say, well, never mind, do such and such instead or, um, you know, don't make a real thing of it. Yes. But 
it's just an opportunity missed if we weren't able to do it. But now, you know, well, it's just compromise. There was no need yes. to say anything about it. That's what they're saying. Yes, a lot of modern educators seem to say, when I tell them that our children have done Shakespeare, yeah. they're very surprised that it's they see. enjoy it. And they feel that it's something that would that would be a burden to children, that they're yeah. too young. So absolutely missed the point, haven't they? Yes. It's the point that children don't want to have kiddie kiddie stuff read to them. They want to, you know, stretch yes. out and um, difficult things and something mm -hmm. slips past that they go on trying if 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 they've got the um, imagination and interest they'll um, keep it going um it will be kept going by being involved in shakespeare and books of that class stamina do you like the lewis books the c.s lewis books yes we've you see them, tremendous read them and reread them. Oh, I know. The children. They came out just about during the time we had our school, and we always used to read to the children at night time. Mm. Yes, you could hardly get them to bed. <laughs> and then, you know, finish them, start them all over mm. again, because so much in them, isn't there? Yes. They're really good teaching, Quiet. evil and good, as well as being children, so they could mm. sort of identify and. They're no, quite unique, aren't they? There aren't any other books quite like those. No, no, he was quite an exceptional man. Yes. But on the other hand, I feel that they're not up to the standard of Elf Bunyan. No. They should not be placed in place of his mm -hmm. teaching. But And you see, if you have non-Christian people in charge, that's what happens. That's what yeah. I'm about. Now, in taking that teaching of Pilgrim's Progress, or rather reading it yes. with a child of seven and eight, that was about the age. That's right. Well, now that, right. um, in that, one of the only books where one did choose one's passages, keep the story, leave all the vilification of um, the Roman Catholic Church and things mm -hmm. out of it. I don't, yes. don't mean keep out Vanity Fair or anything like that, but, mm -hmm. you know, the passage which are not written for, not appropriate at all to children. Yes. We, that, that's about the only book we did that in. So mm -hmm. the narrative flowed through. Yes. And um, uh, was understandable by everybody because the names of the people. We did actually, my brother-in-law turned the first part of it into a play for us, which we did at our school at Christmas. Mm -hmm. And it was the most terrific success because... All the people are there, and none of that generation, about three or four years, ever forgot a word of it, because mm -hmm. they saw it before their eyes, they heard the words they knew, and we have old Bunyan's at the bottom saying, and I saw in my dream, and then, you know, Vanity Fair mm -hmm. would come, or Giant Despair, and all that sort of thing. It's it's a tremendous book, you know. What about it, do you think? Well, I think, so? I, well, one of the very important things, which... Um, I have found has come out of it is that children realize that we are on a journey, that we get to the end of our journey, and there is something on the other side of the river. Christian crossed the river and all the trumpets. It wasn't for him, but anyway, for Mr. Greatheart, all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side. I'll tell you why. One of our children, his grandmother died when we had the school 
And she said to her mother, her mother explained that Fanny gone, oh, well, it'd be lovely for her because she was be with Tommy Handley, who had died shortly before. And there's no question that, you know, you're dead and into the fire. That's the end of it. And I found other examples like that where children obviously knew that they were on a journey or they wouldn't specify like that, that, yes. you know, the end was not the end. And I, I think that has uh, gave a tremendous feeling of uh, security. Um, children who had had losses in their families. I know someone, somebody called Lady Reed, talked to the PE meeting years and years ago, and uh, she had experienced the same sort of thing slightly differently. Told. And how that, uh, um, and she explained to this child, he was upset because of the death of his grandmother, and she said, Well, you know, you know, when houses tumble down, you can't go on living. Her house had got too old, and so she left it quite all right because she's gone somewhere else. She's gone over and she's with God. This house, her body, was worn out. Yes, I think this is. I think it's so important. It's not, you can say that to small children when they ask you a question, you explain it, and it'll simmer in their brains forever. And you won't have them growing up, turning into agnostics and things like that, saying, you know, yes. the end is the end. It's a comfort too, because well, if a child I mean. comes across a a dead bird, very yes. often it's their first acquaintance with death. Yes. And they're worried and they say, Now this does this happen to me mm. when they're about four? And I know I had a child who had had Pilgrim's Progress read to them yes. in the P and E syllabus and one night we were going to pray before she went to bed and she said, You know, mommy, when I come to the river to cross it, it's going to be hard for me. I don't like the idea. And it wasn't a fear of what was going to happen. Yeah. But this unknown, and she's a very sensitive child, and I thought, well, it's helped her cope with perhaps a fear that would have been unexpressed with, again, rather these rather big things in mm. life, rather than just giving children tinfoil that interests them along the fringes. Mm. Yes. And not coping with the, the whole yes. of life. I think Pilgrim's Progress is something that a lot of modern people feel is too much mm. in the language. But you see, children don't, uh, don't read it as you read it. They don't listen to it as you listen to it. They take what they, what they can accept. They're not going to be worried by the things that you, you know, in your uh, sophistication bother about. They... They don't sort of pass lightly through it, but they accept, they absorb what they can. And if they can talk to you about what worries them, you have nothing whatever to fear, mm. I feel, don't you? Yes. Like that. Yes. Uh, she's coming, it's going to be difficult to cross the river, but she didn't say she was going to drown. No. You know, oh, no. she's accustomed to facing difficulties. Yes. And I mean, heaven knows we all feel the same, but mm. um, if you have built up courage, like some people you know who are ill for years and years, and you realise they're tremendous courage, mm. that's going to serve them, Quite. isn't it? And this is obviously something, uh, something that we should be You're thinking right. about yes, in something educating sort the child. Of, you know, like sandcastle, or just yes. um, bring up to them so that um, 
they are prepared to face difficulties. They are prepared difficulties, even though you're frightened, because you're often frightened of something yes. that you'll go on and do mm. it. Quite. And so often are given the strength to go through it. Mm. I mean, I shall never forget the tremendous strength I was given. So I had to visit my sister every day for about four before she died down somewhere in the country. And uh, it was marvellous, really. I mean, I, I grieved most terribly for her, but I was able to be myself mm. at the same time. Yes. Because she was head of the PNU mm. for many years on this kitchen. But um, so I feel it often happens to me something I'm really fearful of doing, but I build myself up so that I determine that I'm going through to do it. Then you find you're surrounded by strength. Yeah. So often, aren't you? Mm. That's my my experience. And putting children in touch with through books, one's able to do this. Perhaps, and there's no, nothing mm. else one could do in quite the same way to yeah. help them yes. be prepared for what's coming on. That's the point about you know. Well, a lot of um, good storybooks might be what's termed fairy stories, bring that sort of idea in, don't they, of, of um, building up your strength facing a frightful situation. Well, I know this is very true of, you know, the princess and the frog, frog prince, yes. that one. Well, you see, uh, she had tremendous courage, really, going, I should go quite to the end. But uh, courage from a child's point of view, wasn't it? Yes. Are there any other books in particular that you found very helpful that stand out in your mind? Uh, what books? I would have to um, refer to this. I was just wondering if mm -hmm. there was something else that was from your experience which was outstanding. Yes, I can't, I can't useful. Mm -hmm. The, water, the Tree That Stood Still. There are three in the series written by, which were fairy stories. There was a bad there was a witch in it, and she was sweet looking. You didn't know she was anything until you saw her breathing, because her breath was green. <laughs> I don't know that. Um, tree That Stood Still. <coughs> the river. And she had three little men working for her. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were toads. Whenever mm. they turned up, you know, evil was abroad. And in a sense, it was a very moral story, but it was amusing and exciting at the same time. That was another mm. very good series that we um, used to have with our children. I think a lot of books written around that area, era, immediately after the war and perhaps before, and a lot of them have been reprinted, one would find storybooks yes. that you'd like because mm -hmm. the style on the whole was studied and good. It wasn't so easy getting things published in those days. Yeah. So that when choosing one might look at those but I'll see if I can find the list when I get home. I wonder if I could also ask a few practical details from your experience going back to the area of discipline, mm -hmm. which it's very difficult to organize a happy atmosphere if one is having 
disobedience, for instance, or rebellion mm -hmm. and a non-cooperative behavior. What is your own personal opinion on the subject of, for instance, smacks and spankings? Of course, it's different in a family. Yes. With a toddler, say, where perhaps it's very appropriate to give yes. a snack mm -hmm. and where it wouldn't be in a classroom. Mm -hmm. But what what sorts of things did you find helpful? Well, uh, nearly always um, deprivation of freedom, free time with, with us, or you know, the occasional going to bed early, but we try to try to be reasonable, try to reason with them if they were old enough, possibly possible. But um, in no case in school, not for any um, reason of parental authority, did we smack any children. Yes. Um, you wouldn't be against that in a home. Oh, no, no. Only out of temper. Child. You know, yes. because you're relieving your own temper, I can say that's absolutely wrong. Yes. It's just for child's sake that you quickly, well, like you do with a dog, you smack a dog and it's forgotten straight away and is, is right. so forgiving. Mm -hmm. And I think a child, um, if it's unusual happening and all over in a second, there's no feeling of hatred, which is quite wrong, because I think it's the most terrifying thing, hatred. Yes. No fear. Hatred. It's, mm. it's um, not surely not a very good thing to control children through fear. Through, no. They're wrong. Move on their part. No, because you, if, if they're afraid of you, um, they don't feel that you are working for their good. Uh, as we have said, that uh, what we do is for their sake. So to make them afraid is counterproductive. Yes. Because they won't act naturally, or they will be far more rebellious than otherwise they would. Mm. And yet one needs firmness as well. Firmness. Um, and if you've already established ultimate authority under authority, yes, it, should, it would only be... Um, a fairly passing phrase. I mean, I know children get so tiresome, you think you're going to live forever with this, and then, you know, it passes off. They go through yes. phases of naughtiness and, and um, you know, rudeness and all those sort of things. It, one has to cope with them as they come, I think. But the uh, personal control of the parent is the most important thing that you, what you do, you do, you know you're doing and you know why you're doing it and you look for the results of what you've done uh, to see if it was the right thing to do. I know it's rather an involved yes. statement, but um, that's the exhausting thing about being a parent, having to be in control if, if the children are, um, well, as it were, out of hand for some reason or other. Yes. Do you find children coming back from school? Do they? Do you find sort of tiresome there at all? I mean, any school or not? Well, actually, I haven't had this experience. No. Because, um, well, if because, they're tired, yes, but mm -hmm. then, then I find that they need something to eat. Often, it's just yeah. a physical thing. Yes, a bath mm. or physical separation, so they don't have to cope with each other yes. for a half hour or so. Yes, until they're ready. What I did find with 
Kirsty when she went through the infants in a large infant school. There were 60 children <laughs> with two teachers and she used to come back in dire need, just exhaustion. But I wasn't thinking of that so much as an, well, Deliberate sometimes an atmosphere failure where the parent feels they haven't coped. Mm. And they don't know quite how to get on top of the situation again. And perhaps they respond by a lot, a lot of shouting or threats mm. or smacks. And they, they don't really know how to get the thing back together again. Mm. And be helped to be in control without being harsh on the other side. I'm all for discussion where it is possible in a situation like that. Why are you behaving? I mean, very often, of course, they don't know, but you might, through conversation, find out some little thing which has thrown the thing yes. out of Because sometimes it's something so small that, you know, you haven't got down to that you could put right. Mm -hmm. But try, by all means, to find, show that, um, you know, this thing's got to be put right, but I want to help you to put it right yes. so that we... We are in the right relationship with uh, with each other and with all members of the family, with God, if you like, to um, talk it out because you know yourself that um, when you've got problems that are absolutely insuperable and you get someone entirely objective to talk to, even if you do always talk all the time, mm. you clear your mind yes. and you see where you've gone wrong, and they may just say the odd thing gets you back. And I feel it's the same with children. It doesn't work in quite the same way, but same with children. If you talk to them about perhaps irrelevances and get them to answer you, um, and gradually sort of widen the field and try to see what it is that upsets them if they're mm. normally. Yes. Um, behave. Because I do think in huge classes, well, I should get absolutely battered. I can't mm. live with them. No, I think but the children people. themselves get battered. It's a good word mm. sometimes. By noise and personalities. Yes. You see, you've and got... they're influenced by it very often, not only by their own home, but by the other children they spend their time with. Yes. We've got television. Yeah. Why haven't you? Yes. Destructive. I I don't know whether you found this when you had a school, but if you see a child who's destructive, you know that there's something wrong. Mm. They're always throwing toys about or scribbling and tearing rather than drawing or painting yes. a picture, which is obviously organised in their mind. But you do have fairly large numbers of children, I think, today displaying this sort of behaviour. Yes. And... You can have parents who are trying to be very careful at home and who are rather puzzled as to what to do to help their own child in this. Who've probably just picked up bad habits. Yes, you mean they probably had a good home background. Yes. A reasonable home background. Yes. To come back behaving as if they couldn't care. Yeah. Like school. Come back from school. Yes. Displaying this behaviour. Very likely imitative. It may be imitative, they may be tired. Yes, I'm think, trying to think of other people's problems. Yes, I know. Yes, who haven't, they, they're not teaching their children no, at home. Right. No. 
and they have them in perhaps a large city school and their children come home and they'd like to do more at home with them and they find that they're up against difficulties with their own children. Of violence? Well yes, a type of violent behaviour really because rudeness and rebellion are for start verbal violence in a sense. What about finding out what they don't do at school? Do they have um, storybooks about um, science or about citizenship in a young way? Things like that. Say, well, now let's get down and do this, which you haven't got time for at school, not in any way run down the school. Yes. And um, see if they could find things which the curriculum hasn't time for, for one reason, I'm going mm-hmm. to that. And um, so build up something at home. They look forward to coming home because they'll be able to do maybe yes. uh, wood carving. Mm-hmm. If older, it might be, I'm not very sure, the curriculum at school. I know it's all very laissez-faire, but something that you do with someone, yes. and between you, you make something mm-hmm. good. I mean, perhaps um, they might like, can they're writing a story? They're writing a story about a child, and making up a story about a child. Well, a lot of children love writing poetry mm. about anything at all. I mean, the ex- terrific poems I used to get from the examinations were really quite mm. thrilling. I don't say they were marvellous poetry, but this child had poured himself out on this particular subject about a dead bird or someone he'd met or post things like that. Very often would help. Yes. And um, uh, encyclopedias, of course, uh, to some children are absolutely gold line, aren't they? If you're possible to put, you know, borrow one from the library. Yes. Something like that. See, now let's see if there's something we can do out of this. I think the parents, I deplore parents going out to work, parents should uh, make an effort this coming home after school, yes, yes, a cup of tea and a bun, and then let's see what we're going to do. And then the next day say, well, now we did this, shall we go on with it or shall we try something else? That sort of approach. In fact, so, a, a parent who was unhappy with the school for some reason couldn't change it at that particular time could do a very great deal, couldn't they? Tremendous. If they thought about it ahead mm. of time. For instance, the the nature walk could be mm. in suitable times of the year. That would be a good break. Yes. Um, straight after school and break mm. some of this tension, perhaps. Yes. And cause a more quiet atmosphere. Well, I think so. You see, uh, I hope the parents that you're talking about are parents who are not exhausted by the end of the day having worked the machine yes. all day, been out to work, you see, because mm. that's the trouble in a lot of homes, that the parents are so tired by half past four, and they can't cope with doing anything with the children because they don't mm. feel the need for it, but they're just physically tired. Yes. This is one of the big problems at the it's moment, isn't it, that people aren't thinking of helping their children as a an activity in its own right. They're thinking of it as a fringe. Well, when they've gone to school, I don't count anymore. Putting much creative effort of thought into those, mm. to the upbringing of their children. And surely a lot of the vandalism, which is so distressing, would be cared for if even a substantial number of parents spent a bit more creative effort in some of these ways. Yes. You see, it all ties up with this birth of children. You've got to think it through, mm. I would say, uh, when you're going to have a family, that for the next so long, 
I'm going to be, this is going to be my job from hell or high water. And um, all day I'm responsible. They're at school during a certain part of the day. When they come back, I'm here, I'm in authority, I'm happy, mm -hmm. I've got food if the children are hungry, and um, then we'll do what they really want to do with me. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.